The reading, as you can see, is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 14, and that's found on page 944 in the Red Pew Bibles. 2 Corinthians 12, starting at 14. Here I am, ready to come to you this third time, and I will not be a burden, because I do not want what is yours, but you. For children ought not to lay up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Let it be assumed that I did not burden you. Nevertheless, you say, since I was crafty, I took you in by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the other brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves with the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves before you? We are speaking in Christ before God. Everything we do, beloved, is for the sake of building you up. For I fear that when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. I fear that there may perhaps be quarrelling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and that I may have to mourn over many who previously sinned and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality and licentiousness that they have practised. Well, for having met you before, as Richard mentioned, my name's Fiona. I'm the executive pastor, and it's so great to be here at six. I always I love uh, coming to visit as we uh, continue in this series on grace and weakness. And I was reflecting across this weekend. This is a bit of a fun fact for you, so I thought I'd share. But I was reflecting across the weekend that when I first started coming to CCIW, that one of the very first series that we, we started was beginning a new series on the letter 1 Corinthians. That was back in 2007. And so over these last kind of 10 years, and we, we did have a break admittedly, but over the last 10 years, we've kind of delved into these two letters, slowly working our way uh, through them and are finally almost uh, at the end. And whether you've been here for all of that or just part of that, I hope you, like me, have been just really uh, encouraged as we've seen time and again the marvellous richness of God's grace to us in Jesus. Um, so as we come to look at this passage tonight, why don't we uh, pray and ask God to be at work in us and reveal himself to us by his grace. Let's pray. Our loving God and Father, we praise and we thank you for the magnificent riches of your grace and love to us in Jesus. And as we come to look at your word together now, we ask that you would please open our eyes to see your truth and love more clearly. Uh, strengthen us to draw near to you as you draw near to us. And most of all, we ask you to please soften and to change our hearts by your grace. For your name's sake. Amen. Now, like many people, I love watching a good TV show. And over the last few weeks, one of the shows I've found myself particularly enjoying is a popular show that's just finished its latest season. Uh, and the finale this last week was watched by 2.2 or so million Australians. And that show is The Bachelorette. 
Now, I'm not sure how many of you have seen it, and I won't ask you to raise your hand if you're not quite ready to admit that you watched and loved it too. Uh, but if you haven't seen the show, I'll just kind of like give you a simple summary. It's not a complex show, so it's quite easy. <laughs> it has a pretty simple premise. There's one bachelorette, okay? And this season, you can see her on screen. It was the eminently likable uh, bogan, as she referred to herself, Sophie Monk. And then there's 20 or so men who all compete to win her attention and her heart. And by the end of the season, uh, Sophie chooses who she wants to live forever after with. Now, the, across the show, there's one thing that uh, keeps um, coming up. It's, it unfolds across the season, and it's a question that the bachelorette asks every contestant, and, and sometimes we ask ourselves at home, ask of them as we're watching too. The question is asked, why are they there? Why did they come on this show? What are they hoping to get out of it? Are they there for their own fame and fortune, perhaps just looking for some sort of platform to launch a career for themselves? Or are they there to find love? What are their motives and intentions? Are they there for love or are they there for something else? And it's this same question of motives that's at the centre of this passage this morning. The church in Corinth are questioning Paul's motives. What are his motives? What are his intentions? Does he actually love them? Or is he after something else? Now, central to this section of uh, 2 Corinthians that Cynthia just read for us is this whole question of motives and whether or not they can trust Paul. Uh, Over the last few chapters, debates about rulers and leadership and self-seeking authority have been at the very centre. And so Paul here, he's at pains to make his motives clear before he comes to visit them. And he wants them to know that in coming to them again, the only reason he wants to come at all is because he genuinely and truly loves them. His deepest motivation towards them is love. But it's nothing like the love we see on The Bachelorette. Um, That's arguably far more infatuation uh, than love. Uh, Paul's motive is true love in its richest uh, and its costliest form. Love that's invested and committed and full of hope and imagination and that perseveres and that at its very centre is about the other and longing to serve them. And so as we work through this section of the letter, we're going to look at it under kind of three key settings. Firstly, we're we're going to look at the question of Paul's love uh, and his defence to the church in Corinth, that love really is his motivation. And that's in the first section. And then we'll look at the second um, cluster of verses and we'll explore the basis of Paul's love. And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at the power to truly love as we seek to apply this passage to ourselves. So firstly, let's look at the question of Paul's love. Uh, If you have your Bibles open, look with me again um, from verse 14. Paul writes, Here I am, ready to come to you this third time. And I will not be a burden, because I do not want what is yours, but you. For children ought not to lay up for their parents, but parents for their children. 
I'll most gladly spend and be spent for you. If, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? Let it be assumed that I did not burden you. Okay, so just to set the scene, Paul's about to come and visit the church in Corinth for the third time. First time he visited was when he planted the church. Second time, the painful visit we read about in chapter 2. And here, as he prepares to come again, he's writing them to them um, by distance to address some concerns he's heard they have about him. And specifically, that they're uh, insulted that Paul doesn't want their money. And they're claiming he didn't take their money because he doesn't love them. And so Paul here in these opening verses is at pains to make it known to them that they couldn't be more wrong. His deepest motivation for everything he does is his love for them. It's his love which has sought their welfare all along, the love that now drives Paul, despite all the agony of the recent weeks, to write this letter and to come to them once more. And Paul says he will not be a burden, and especially he doesn't want to be a burden to them financially. He doesn't want their money. And in verse 14, he says, I do not want what is yours, but you. And it's almost as if he's saying this with kind of a sidelong glance at the super apostles as he's saying it. Those super apostles who did want the Corinthians' money, who were charging the Corinthians to see them, Paul's kind of standing separately to them and he's saying, that's not me. And in contrast with such tenderness and such love, he says, I do not want what is yours. I want you. See, far beyond their money and possessions, he wanted the Corinthians so he could present them to Christ. See, Paul has no ambition for greater glory, much less their money. His deepest motivation for everything is love. And so as he unpacks this and explains his defence, he uh, explains that he loves them firstly as a parent, um, using that metaphor, and secondly and relatedly at great cost. So firstly, he uses the metaphor of a parent. Now, Paul here claims um, that he is the father of the church, that he planted it and and they are his children. And so Paul has a particular unique and special relationship with them. Um, This isn't particularly surprising. He's used this image before in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. uh, He says to the church in Corinth, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. And he sees himself in this unique and special parent role with the church as his children and so it's from this kind of distinct relationship that he writes in verse 14 and says children ought not to lay up or other translations say ought not to save up for their parents but parents for their children I know I'm a parent and parenting is one of those jobs where you often or basically don't get paid, uh, at least not in any sort of financial way. And it's especially the case when your children are young. Uh, By nature, as a parent, you save up and pay for your children, not them, for you. 
Now, every day uh, during the week on site here, there are about 60 children who come onto this site uh, to attend the preschool that's just down the path. And I want you to imagine it's 9.30am tomorrow morning, because that's when then they all get dropped off, and there's a whole group of three and four-year-olds marching down this path. They've got their little backpacks on, they're walking down with their parents, but they've got their hands on their hips, and they're looking up at their parents getting frustrated because their parents won't let them pay their own way. And so these little three and four-year-olds are walking along and sternly saying, Mum, Dad... Why won't you let me pay for my own education? Why don't you get the preschool to send the invoice to me? And while we're on this topic, why won't you let me pay rent for my bedroom? Why won't you accept my money, Mum? Don't you think highly of me? Don't you even love me? Now, I have a three a four-year-old, and I can imagine him saying that somewhat cheekily, actually. Yet at the same time, it's totally absurd. It's crazy, but that's what's going on here. Uh, Paul says he is their father and they are his children. He will provide for them, not them for him. And he doesn't want their money. He wants so much more than their money. He wants them. And as a parent loves their child, so too Paul loves the church in Corinth. And secondly and relatedly, Paul loves them at immense cost. Paul doesn't hold anything back. He loves them so much, he says he will gladly spend everything he has and expend himself as well. And you kind of get this in, in, in the words he's writing here. These, these verses in um, verses 14 to 15 are such a, a heartfelt plea and they're so emotionally charged. As Paul asks, if I love you more, are you to love me less? And you can kind of feel how much he's wearing his heart on his sleeve here. What more does he have to do? Paul loves the church in Corinth, but they don't trust him. And in their own pride, they don't want to be loved. And there's this uh, just sad, inverse relationship going on, whereas the more he tries to love them, Giving, being willing to give everything he has, the more that is slapped back in his face. Uh, and then in what must have been such a painful twist for Paul, in verses 16 to 18, they accuse him of being crafty, of being deceitful, and of taking advantage of them, of being a trickster, Refusing to accept their support so he could send others later, people like Titus, to exploit them and uh, exert even more from them. Yet even in the face of this dismissal and these false accusations, Paul says he will gladly spend himself and be spent as well. And he loves this church with an amazing, enduring, persevering, and costly love. And it raises the question, where does Paul find the means to love like this? On what basis is Paul able to love like this? Well, we see something of the answer in the second half, and I think these two halves kind of go together. And so let's look now at verses 19 to 21, and uh, the basis of Paul's love. 
Uh, in this next section, Paul balances out the heartfelt defence of his love for them with, in the previous section with a powerful question that he asked directly to the church in Corinth. Uh, look with me again at the passage from verse 19. Paul asks, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves before you? We're speaking in Christ before God. Everything we do, beloved, is for the sake of building you up. Do you feel how direct and uh, powerful that question is? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves before you? Paul's saying somewhat pointedly to the Corinthians, did you mistakenly think that I was defending and explaining myself to you? He says, I'm not presenting my case to you. You're not my jury. I'm saying all this in the sight of God. And we see here Paul raise a really kind of important uh, theme and a really important idea that all of their relationship and everything that is said and done between them is done in Christ before God. See, for both Paul and the Corinthian church, it's the vertical relationship that they share in Christ which directly affects their horizontal relationship. Okay, let me try to explain what I mean by that. Firstly, their vertical relationship. So both Paul and the church in Christ, the church in Corinth rather, share the amazing reality of being in Christ Jesus, united in Christ, bound to Christ, loved and redeemed and shown grace in Christ. This is true of both of them and this shared grace in Christ before God is their vertical relationship. But then Paul makes this astounding point and he says it's this vertical relationship that they share in Christ before God which directly affects their horizontal relationship. And this is the basis of Paul's love for them. Their vertical relationship they share in Christ before God is what directly affects their horizontal relationship and this is the basis of Paul's love for them. And Paul here is reminding them and us that our lives are lived out firstly in this vertical, vertical relationship. We live our lives out firstly before God and then to others. And so the grace and love which we know in Christ before God is the basis of the grace and the love with which we relate to others. And by implication then, we, like, we can see what the basis of his love isn't. You see, the basis of Paul's love is not that he founded the church in Corinth and as dear and as precious as that makes them to him. It's not his own need to be a parent who raises successful and flourishing children. No, this is a love that finds its source in the grace both of them have received in Jesus that overflows into their relationship with one another. And you see how this second section helps the first section make sense. Without grasping this as the basis of Paul's love, some of that stuff that he said in the first section, it can feel a little bit too intense. And yet it's so powerful when we realise he isn't saying any of that on the basis of needing or longing for their love and approval. 
He isn't saying it on the basis of desperately hoping they'll drop these false claims against him. He's not saying it on the basis of wanting to be powerful and significant and influential in their lives. I love that's based on that sort of kind of neediness of wanting the approval of others or seeking to grow your own influence and significance. Uh, that's not a particularly great love at all. Rather, it's because this is the basis of Paul's love for them that his emotional plea in that first section makes sense. Uh, and it's because this is the basis of his love that Paul has been able to remain so deeply uh, vulnerable and powerfully connected towards the church in Corinth. I just find it somewhat astounding that Paul continues to remain so personally open and vulnerable before them, loving them unreservedly, um, open with them about his own struggles, his own fears, his own weaknesses, uh, because he doesn't need to defend himself to them. I mean, the attacks and the false accusations that the Corinthians were um, saying about him, that, that must have been deeply painful for Paul. Uh, yet he neither responds in kind, nor does he kind of protect himself by cutting off and distancing himself, um, just kind of stopping writing the letters to them. I know Paul remains deeply connected to them. Even with the immense sadness and the fears he felt as he looked at the church in Corinth, with those extensive lists uh, we read in verses 20 to 21, things that he's written about to them before, prayed about for them so many times, uh, and yet still there are divisions and factions, arguments, quarrelling, sexual immorality and more. Uh, he's realistic, things won't be as he hoped when he returns but as he loves them in Christ, he stays connected and continues to graciously love them. And don't you think that's such a powerful uh, and helpful example of love in community for us? Now, earlier this week, Eternity Magazine, it's an um, Australian Christian magazine, um, published an article in which they interviewed a, a Christian counsellor. She's based here in Sydney. Uh, her name's Jenny Brown and she runs a fabulous organisation called the Family Systems Institute. And she was being interviewed about relationships and Christian maturity and she said this. When a Christian sees how undeserved the love of God is for them, it's the most humbling of relationship experiences. I do think that this translates into gradually changing our horizontal relationships and helps us to be more willing to be gracious towards others. Oh, we've been shown so much undeserved favour from God in Jesus. Remarkable love and grace. And in the face of that, how could we not be full of love and grace to others? And it's this undeserved favour from God in Jesus, this gift of grace that's the basis of Paul's love for the church in Corinth and is the basis of our love for one another too. And so it's worth just pausing and I just want to uh, lay before you and, and ask you, how does the love of God for you in Jesus translate into your horizontal relationships.
How does it shape the relationships you have here at church with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is the vertical relationship we share in Christ before God evident in our horizontal relationships? As we love and show grace to one another with vulnerability and openness and commitment to remain deeply connected. Do you love in such a way that you're neither on the one hand distancing or cutting yourself off from one another, especially when it gets too hard? Or becoming too close and enmeshed and seeking to find kind of your approval and significance in these relationships that you share? But rather, do you have a genuine and real and rich relationship with one another? Graciously loving others on the basis of the love and grace that's ours in Christ Jesus before God. As together we live out our lives before him. Uh, so that we can say, as Paul says in verse 19, all we do is for one another's strengthening. And everything we do, beloved, is for the sake of building you up. Okay, well, let's, let's um, wrap this up. We started with the church in Corinth questioning Paul's motives and intentions. Okay, we've seen Paul's defence that his motive is true love in its richest and costliest form. Love that's invested and committed and perseveres and that as its very centre is about the other and about longing to serve them. Uh, extending the same grace to them that God in Christ Jesus has extended to us. And so it, it raises the question, what would it take for this kind of love to descend on us and to fill us? What would it take to be able to truly love like this? Well, I think we hear and see here in Paul that it will take uh, an especially costly form of love. Perhaps a form of love that we could never pay for or earn, a form of love that's free and unmerited, our most costly form of love uh, called grace. See, in talking of his love for the church in Corinth, Paul frames his love for them in the very costliest terms. In verse 15, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. I mean, this is almost crazy. It's incredulous that Paul would expend himself, would gladly be used up, spend everything he has and he is for them. I reckon we ever find the power to love like that. Except in the one who has already been utterly and completely spent for us. Uh, in the Lord Jesus, who in his life and his death and his resurrection gladly expended himself and was spent for us in the ultimate act of costly love and in the ultimate act of grace. See, just a few earlier, just a few chapters earlier in this letter, Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says, for you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. 
Where does Paul find the power to love at such a cost as this? To be able to look with love at the church in Corinth and say so movingly and tenderly, I, I, I don't want what's yours. I want you. And I'll most gladly spend and be spent for you. Where does he find the power to truly love like this? Well, it's in the costly love and the rich grace of God in the Lord Jesus, who personally gave everything for us, who gladly spent and was spent for us in the most utter form of weakness, who became poor so we might become rich, who's already paid the cost in full. And Paul says this costly love, this wonderfully rich grace is sufficient for us. Amen.